note before we begin. This episode contains discussions of human sex trafficking, including the abuse of minors and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. Today, we're going to visit a world filled with a kind of depravity that's difficult to comprehend or talk about. But it's important that we try to. Because while the events of this episode may feel far away for many of us, the story is universal and current. Similar events still play out behind closed doors across the globe. And while these spaces are built by criminals and propped up by webs of corruption, their true power comes when those who believe in good choose to look away. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a 23-year-old mother who disappeared from Argentina in 2002 on her way to a hospital appointment. Ever since, her parents have risked life and limb to get her back. Her name is Marita Verone. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. It's April 2nd, 2002. Maria Verone, or Marita as her family calls her, lives in San Miguel de Tucumán, Argentina, a city that sits along the Salí River at the foot of the Aconquija Mountains. It's home to about 750,000 residents. Marita's 23 years old and shares an apartment with her partner David and their three-year-old daughter, Micaela, or Mika. But tonight, she's made plans to stay with her parents, Susanna Trimarco and Daniel Verone. They conveniently live just six blocks away from a local maternity hospital. Marita has an appointment to see a doctor tomorrow in preparation for getting an IUD. Now, Marita's not going to the kind of hospital that Susanna would choose for her daughter. It's a public facility, and Susanna would prefer Marita to see a private specialist. She's heard ugly stories about this particular hospital. Babies disappearing, nurses telling mothers their child died without offering any proof. Susanna insists that Marita use her parents' insurance to see a more exclusive doctor. But Marita doesn't want to burden them. 
not when there's free care available. They've already done so much for her in her life. Plus, Marita's been talking to one of her neighbors, Patricia, who lives in her apartment complex. Patricia only has good things to say about the hospital. Her boyfriend works there as the head of staff and told Marita he'd help her out. But to calm Susanna's fears, Marita tells her mother that she can go with her when she actually gets the IUD. Susanna can hold her hand through the whole procedure if she wants to. The following morning is business as usual. Susanna and Daniel get ready for work. Marita gets ready for her day. She even gets to sleep in a little, which is nice. Susanna explains that normally, to get an appointment at a public hospital in Argentina, you have to get up really early. Like, arrive by 4 or 5 in the morning early. So Marita's really grateful for her neighbor's help. The woman gave Marita specific instructions with a clear timeline. Marita's supposed to leave her parents' place between 9 and 9.30 a.m. When she arrives at the hospital, she's supposed to ask for the neighbor's boyfriend by name. Before leaving, Marita tells her mother that she won't be gone for more than an hour. It's a quick checkup, in and out. Since it's free care, she doesn't need her ID, so she leaves it behind. She gives Susanna a kiss and heads out the door. After a morning of work, Susanna stops back home around noon. Daniel's there, also on break. But Marita isn't. It's been close to three hours since she left for the hospital, and she hasn't messaged to say she's running late. This wasn't like Marita. She always stayed in touch. According to Susanna, waves of emotion wash over her. She knows something's wrong. She doesn't know what yet. It's just a mother's sixth sense. Then she calls the hospital and her fears are confirmed. A staff member tells her Marita never arrived. Susanna and Daniel drop everything to search for their daughter. They start with the other hospitals in the area, thinking maybe Marita got into an accident on her walk. They call friends, family, classmates, anyone they can think of. Sometime in the first 24 hours, Susanna and Daniel arrive at the police station, five blocks away from their home, to file a missing person report. They know their daughter is hurt or in danger. They explain that if Marita ever went somewhere for an extended period of time, she let her mother know where and what time to expect her back. Plus, Marita would never choose to be without her daughter Mika for this long. But officials don't act with any sense of urgency. They tell Marita's parents that she most likely went to a friend's house, maybe a boyfriend's place. She'll be back soon. Susanna tells them that Marita doesn't have a boyfriend. She has a partner and a child. She assures officials that they've done their due diligence already. But the cops refuse to take a report. According to them, 72 hours need to pass before they'll even consider it. So, as is all too common with disappearances, the family of the missing is left to conduct their own investigation. Now, much of the information I'm about to present comes from a first-hand account that's told out of order. I did my best to arrange everything in a sequence that made sense to me, but I want to acknowledge that even though the details can be corroborated, the timeline is most likely imperfect. 
That said, let's pick up where we left off. When Susanna and Daniel arrive home from the police station, there are about 50 people waiting for them, friends and family ready to help. They've made posters with photocopies of Marita's face. Day and night, they hang them around the city. Marita's walk to the hospital would have taken her through an area where there have been a number of reported rapes in the past. So initially, they fear she may have been sexually assaulted and abandoned by her assailant. Search parties scour the highways and streets. As they do, Susanna racks her brain for possible clues. Did Marita say or do anything before leaving that could point them in the right direction? Her mind travels to her daughter's neighbor, Patricia, the woman who pushed Marita to go to the public hospital in the first place. Susanna met Patricia before and felt like there was something sinister about her attitude. She enjoyed a lifestyle that felt too lavish for her alleged career as a nurse. She didn't seem to have any family relations, but strange men would visit her apartment at odd hours. Patricia also asked a lot of personal questions about Marita's family, like where they worked, how much money they made, where they lived, questions you wouldn't expect from a casual acquaintance. Susanna warned her daughter about being too forthcoming, but Marita wasn't concerned. I'm 23 years old, she told her mother. What's going to happen to me? Susanna and Daniel decide to pay Marita's neighbor a visit. Neither of them think it's a coincidence that she gave their daughter such specific instructions on the day she disappeared, outlining exactly when and where she should be. They ring Patricia's doorbell, bang on her door, shout for her to open up, but there's no answer. They wait around for Patricia to come home or leave the apartment. They ask another resident if she may have gone on vacation, but the resident says no, which means she must be intentionally avoiding them. Later, Daniel gets a hold of Patricia's phone number. He tries her line, and miraculously, she picks up. Daniel asks her what she did to Marita, where she sent her, who else was involved. He wants the name of her boyfriend, the one she told Marita to meet at the hospital. Patricia says she didn't send Marita anywhere against her will. Marita wanted to go to the hospital, and at the end of the day, she did her a favor by saving her money. But Patricia's tune changes when Daniel threatens to get the police involved. She doesn't know that Marita's parents have already tried and failed to do that. She gives them the name and address of her alleged boyfriend, Miguel Ardiles. In no time, Susanna's out front at his house ringing the doorbell. And by the look of things, Miguel doesn't work for any public hospital in Argentina. Hi, Parcasters. It's Greg and Vanessa from the series Serial Killers. For the past five years, we've explored hundreds of history's most notorious murderers, giving listeners an intimate look at their sordid origins and heinous crimes. If you haven't had a chance to join us before, there's no better time to dive in than right now for our Serial Killers 5th Anniversary Special. It's a four-part examination into the mythology surrounding four fearsome killers. Edmund Kemper, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer. Our 5th Anniversary Series uncovers the men behind the mayhem, analyzing what turned them into killers and how their lethal behavior made their stories larger than life. 
If you've listened to the show before, we hope you enjoy. And if you haven't, this is the perfect series for any avid ParCast fan. Follow Serial Killers to hear our four-part fifth anniversary special. Listen now, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It's April 2002. Miguel Ardile's house is not what Susanna expected from a public hospital employee. He lives in an impoverished neighborhood of Tucumán, but his home stands out from his neighbors. Susanna describes it as a fortress with high walls, large and expensive looking. She rings the doorbell and waits for her husband outside the automatic gate that separates Miguel's driveway from the road. They can see three cars parked on the property, In time, they're greeted by one of Miguel's housekeepers, a woman. She tells Susanna and Daniel that Miguel is home, but he can't come out. He's sleeping. Susanna finds this strange given it's 6 p.m., but she doesn't question the information. She tells the housekeeper that they can either wake Miguel up now, or she'll stand there, ringing the doorbell until he's ready to talk. When Miguel finally comes out, he's shirtless and unkempt. Susanna and Daniel volley questions at him. They want to know what he's done with Marita. First, Miguel tells them that Marita had visited the hospital once before, but not on the day she went missing. Then he says Marita was never at the hospital. He claims he never saw her and has no idea what they're talking about. In other words, he can't keep his story straight. Susanna and Daniel leave furious and with little information, but they feel positive that Patricia and Miguel are behind their daughter's disappearance. Their skittish behavior and lies prove as much. Susanna and Daniel drive straight to the police station and arrive sometime around 11 p.m. By now, they've waited 72 hours as officials requested. And in that time, they found leads on their own real leads. They explain everything they've learned so far about Patricia and Miguel, but the cops find every excuse in the book to avoid doing any work. I'm not being hyperbolic. They tell Susanna and Daniel they can't file a missing person report because they don't have paper for their typewriter, which obviously is absurd. But Daniel is like, okay, fine, I'll get you paper if that's what needs to happen. He drives to the nearest bookstore, pays for the paper out of pocket, brings it back, only to be told they still can't file a report because Marita's husband needs to be present to approve. Running out of patience, Susanna once again explains that Marita doesn't have a husband. She has a partner, David, and she doesn't know why he would need to be here for this. But if that's what it'll take to get the ball rolling, she'll go get him right now and the cops tell her, please do. Once David arrives, they do file a report with the paper they now have. 
but once they're finished, they tell Marita's family they can't actually look for her because there's no gas in their cars. I can't even imagine how frustrated her family feels at this point. Through tears, Susanna begs the superintendent of the station to do something, anything, but they're completely unmoved by her pleas. Daniel gives the officers cash to fuel their cars, but as you can imagine, Marita's family has lost all faith in law enforcement at this point. The amount of unnecessary obstacles they've experienced makes it feel like either the officials don't care to help or they've been instructed not to. Unsure of what to do, Marita's loved ones go back to the drawing board, but the very next day, they receive an unexpected lead. An anonymous caller phones Susanna and Daniel at home. They have a message for the woman looking for her daughter. They know what happened. She was abducted. On the morning Marita went missing, the caller saw a car with three men inside. It pulled up beside Marita as she walked down the sidewalk. Then two men got out, grabbed Marita, pulled her in the car, and took off down the road. The news knocks the wind out of Marita's parents. They don't really know how to process it. Marita was a young mother who liked to study and work. She barely ever went out and never interacted with anyone Susanna considered dangerous. Why would someone want to kidnap her? Over the next few days, Susanna brings her granddaughter Mika on late night drives around the city to search for Marita. The three-year-old spends the rides confused, crying for her mother. She eventually exhausts herself and falls asleep. But Susanna hasn't slept in a week. Her eyes won't close because her mind won't rest. Then, late one night, Daniel drives to a city park in Tucumán. He sees a group of about 15 women, sex workers of varying ages. He shows each of them a photo of Marita and asks if they've seen her. Everyone says no, except one young woman who motions Daniel over and whispers, I know what happened to your daughter, and I know where she is. She can't say more right now because they're being watched and it's dangerous for Daniel to stay any longer. She tells him to come back in an hour in a different car and she'll answer his questions. It's not what Daniel wants to hear after all this time, but he listens. He borrows a car from a coworker and returns an hour later. The next time he pulls up to the park, the woman steps inside as if Daniel's a client. And as they drive away, she tells him where Marita is. Marita was kidnapped, sold for 2,000 pesos, and taken to La Rioja province. When Daniel gets home and tells Susanna, she can't believe it. She's never really given much thought to sex trafficking. It's not something the media or anyone else in Argentina really talks about. But Susanna and Daniel investigate the woman's statement and find evidence to suggest she's telling the truth. Now, I don't know exactly how they corroborate this information, but early on in her efforts, Susanna uses police reports to find the names and locations of known pimps and sex traffickers. She then shows up at their doors, pretending to be a so-called madam and offering to buy the women and often young girls that are being held captive. She learns a lot through this process. 
A week or two after Marita's disappearance, Susanna and Daniel once again bring their information to law enforcement. Susanna says she stands in the prosecutor's office for six hours straight, demanding that the police do their jobs. But they still don't want to do anything. They leave distraught. Eventually, Daniel reaches out to a friend who's a detective. This friend connects them to some trustworthy officers willing to help investigate Marita's case. And it's exactly the break they need. Over the next few weeks, Marita's parents gather intel about the state of human trafficking in Argentina. It's enough that they're able to pull warrants to raid seven different brothels in La Rioja, including one where Marita is suspected to be. Susanna and Daniel are set to participate alongside police. They want to be there if and when they find Marita, and they don't trust the cops to act on their own. But the raids don't go as planned. When they arrive in La Rioja, three months after their daughter's disappearance, local officials intervene. A judge from the province tells Susanna and Daniel they can't conduct the raids as scheduled. He claims there's a technical error in their paperwork, so they'll need to turn around, refile with the prosecutor's office in Tucumán, and return once it's corrected. I can't imagine how infuriating this was. It feels arbitrary, and Susanna and Daniel can't afford to waste time, but they're faced with no other choice. Marita's parents do as they're told. They drive the four and a half hours back home, make the adjustments, and return the following week to conduct the raids. This is their first look into a world they never knew existed. Inside one of the brothels, they find around 60 young women and a few underage girls. Most are in their underwear, staring straight ahead at the ground. They're too afraid to speak. Some of them appear to be drugged. None are Marita, but one young woman around Marita's age runs to Susanna embraces her and begs for help. She tells Susanna she's been held against her will for a year and a half now. I want to go home, she says. Please don't leave me. According to Susanna, the woman's name is Lorena, and her words in this moment are important. They establish a lack of consent, which opens the door for legal action. Daniel gives Lorena his jacket, and together, he and Susanna bring her to their car parked outside. The men who allegedly run the brothels stand on street corners, watching, their guns in plain sight. And the police let it happen. They don't ask the men to leave, and they don't ask them any questions. By the end of the raid, Lorena's the only woman to directly express concern. There's no question that the others are in danger, but officials are unwilling to remove the threat of violence or take them somewhere safe where they might open up. Too afraid to speak up, they remain silent. Of the 60 or so victims, investigators only take three down to the police station. Lorena and two girls that look to be about 12 or 13. Far too young to consent. Marita's parents travel with Lorena and the girls to the police station. And when they arrive, Lorena asks Susanna and Daniel to please not leave her alone. She says if they do, the police will just send her back to her captors. After helping everyone make statements, they offer to take Lorena home with them. They tell her she can stay at their house as long as she likes. 
or until they find her family. Unfortunately, Susanna and Daniel can't legally take the underage girls. That would require their parents' permission. So they tell the judge to make sure they're well-treated because they have the girls' names and they plan to tell their families exactly where they're at. Later, they arrive back in Tucumán. Based on the amount of swelling and bruising on Lorena's face, Susanna knows not to ask too many questions. There's no need for the poor girl to relive past horrors. Lorena's not the daughter Susanna was looking for, but she embraces her with a mother's love. She shows Lorena to Marita's old room. She gives her a pair of her daughter's pajamas and tells her to sleep in Marita's bed. They leave the lights on to ease Lorena's fear that her abductors will return. Then Susanna lets her rest. Over the next two months, Lorena slowly opens up about her experience being trafficked. The details are harrowing and hard to swallow. Turns out Lorena knew Marita, not well, but they were held together for some time. In fact, Susanna and Daniel learned that if the judge hadn't intervened and they were able to conduct their first raid as planned, they would have found their daughter. Marita was there in that brothel with Lorena only a few hours before they arrived. It's 2004, two years after Marita Verone disappeared. Her mother, Susanna Tremarco, has become the face in the fight against sex trafficking in her country. She hasn't stopped conducting raids. She's rescued many more women and girls who've since been able to share their stories. Together, their accounts paint a picture of a sex trafficking network so large, it spans continents. Susanna now works with journalists to expose this corruption, and her efforts have earned her some dangerous enemies. Strangers now park outside of her house and follow her places. She receives anonymous death threats to her home. Voices describe how they'll throw her in the river, kidnap her granddaughter Mika and sell her for sex, just like they did Marita. Susanna knows the threats aren't empty. Her house has been set on fire by strangers throwing lit rags doused with kerosene. She was almost run over by a car twice, once while in her driveway taking out the trash. She's heard the stories of physical and psychological torture from survivors, how traffickers kill in cold blood, make their victims watch, and force them to clean up afterward. But Susanna doesn't back down. She says the desperation of a mother blinds you. It makes you fearless. So she fearlessly shouts her message to the four winds to let everyone involved know she won't let them destroy more lives. At press conferences, Susanna makes a point not to cry in front of the television cameras. A young woman she rescued named Andrea has told her not to. She says, that's what these men want. They want you to cry, to get sick, to fall into bed and lose the will to look for your daughter and just give up. Andrea spent eight years with her traffickers. After she disappeared, her family searched endlessly for her, chasing tips all the way to Brazil. But after enough time passed, they assumed she was dead. When Susanna helped Andrea track her family down, it was hard for everyone to process the reunion. It was like having a loved one come back from the grave. 
the joy and emotions were overwhelming. It's the kind of story that acts as a North Star when Susanna's mind drifts to the darkness her daughter is still trapped in. She knows what happens there. The beatings, the assaults, the rapes. How women are stripped of all identification, handed fake IDs, and told if they try to escape or tell anyone that they didn't choose this life, their families will be killed. Traffickers will tell them they know exactly where their loved ones live and work. And most days, they'll force feed them drugs to make them more compliant and to try to make them forget their old lives. But survivors have assured Susanna the letter doesn't work. They've told her, I never forgot my family. Marita will be the same. So Susanna doesn't stop looking. Many times, she rescues women who've met or seen Marita before. They say abductors changed her appearance, cut her hair and dyed it black. Many suggest places where she could be, but the traffickers that have Marita move their victims often. According to Susanna, as much as every 15 days or so, which makes every raid feel like a game of roulette, Marita always feels just out of arm's reach. With each one, Susanna learns more information about the nature of the trafficking industry in South America, including the names and pseudonyms of the men and women at the top of its pyramid structure. One thread tugs at another, but with a tapestry this large, it feels like it'll never unravel. Eventually, Susanna receives a tip that her daughter's been taken abroad to Spain, Burgos, as part of a human trafficking pipeline that moves through Chile, Bolivia, and Uruguay. Susanna travels to Europe, but officials can't find Marita anywhere. And before the end of 2004, Susanna receives more news. Alleged witnesses claim that traffickers killed Marita and buried her somewhere, most likely in Argentina, in La Rioja province. Devastated, Susanna asks officials to excavate brothels all over Argentina which they do, but they never find Marita. And eventually they give up and police close her case. Marita's family protests. Without a body, no one can prove the traffickers actually killed their daughter. The tip could have been disinformation, intentionally leaked to persuade Susanna to stop her crusade. So Susanna requests a parallel case of inquiry and continues to fight. In time, she learns even more about the structure of the sex trafficking industry, the groomers, the facilitators, and she confirms what she suspected from the start. The industry is made possible in part by individuals working within law enforcement and other government institutions. In Argentina, corrupt police officers aid and abet traffickers both directly and indirectly accepting hush money and turning blind eyes to activities. Politicians receive donations from organized crime. Judges accept bribes to make trafficking cases disappear. Susanna says she finds out that the judge who delayed Susanna and Daniel's first raid, the one who claimed there was a technical error in their paperwork, was actually an accomplice of the Argentine mafia. The secretary of the public prosecutor's office in Tucumán tipped him off about the raids ahead of time. By 2006, Susanna's investigative work and activism attracts the attention of the United States Embassy, 
what she takes as an encouraging sign. She's on to something. She throws herself even further into her work. She discovers there is no singular law against human trafficking in Argentina. People can only be convicted of crimes that fall under the umbrella of trafficking, like kidnapping and rape. This makes prosecuting cases more difficult. And even if traffickers are convicted of every crime possible, sentences are incredibly light. Many spend as little as three years in prison. In 2007, five years after Marita's disappearance, the US Secretary of State honors Susanna with an International Woman of Courage Award. That same year, she establishes the Maria de los Angeles Foundation in her daughter's honor. In addition to rescuing victims, the organization offers legal, developmental, and rehabilitation services to trafficking survivors. This includes a team of lawyers who participate in each raid to ensure survivors know their rights and can immediately start building a case if they so choose. The foundation provides basic necessities like food, water, and a room to call their own. Survivors are paired with psychologists and social workers to help them transition back to everyday life, a process that, as you can imagine, is a challenge. To set them up for continued success, the foundation helps survivors finish any primary or secondary education. They also offer free childcare. In 2007 and 2008, Susanna lobbies to transform human trafficking laws and wins. Argentina codifies human trafficking as a crime and increases maximum sentences to 10 years. New language ensures minors who've been trafficked no longer need to prove their status as victims, saving them from being re-traumatized. But for every victory, there's heartbreak and setbacks. In 2010, Susanna's husband and Marita's father dies. According to Susanna, he passes away from sadness after crying so much for his daughter. She says he wanted to die and he did. Two years later, prosecutors in Argentina pursue criminal action against 13 defendants accused of human trafficking in relation to Marita's disappearance. The case is spearheaded by Susanna's activism. In total, the prosecution submits 55 pieces of evidence and 144 witness statements. Many survivors take the stand and detail accounts of their experience in captivity. Each one identifies the defendants as their abductors and or abusers. But on December 11, 2012, Argentine judges acquit all 13 defendants. The decision is a slap in the face for Susanna and all the survivors involved. The public is outraged by the blatant disregard for more than a decade of painstaking investigative work. Thousands take to the streets in protest. After the trial, Susanna appeals the decision, and one year later, the higher court reverses the outcome of the case. A judge convicts 10 out of the now 12 accused traffickers. One passed away in the interim, and in April 2014, they're sentenced to anywhere from 15 days of house arrest to 22 years in prison. By the end of 2014, Susanna has reportedly conducted more than 175 raids and acted as the personal guardian for 129 survivors of sex trafficking, 
taking them into her home, bringing them to medical appointments, and helping reunite them with their families. Her efforts have contributed to the rescue of an additional 2,500 women and girls from captivity. Those numbers have only increased since. But as of this recording, Marita Verone has never been found. Her daughter Mika turns 23 this year, the same age her mother was when she disappeared. Mika acts as a spokesperson against human trafficking alongside her grandmother. And unfortunately, their fight is as relevant as ever. I could rattle off statistics about the state of the global human trafficking trade, but no one actually knows how many people fall victim each year. That's because as a crime, trafficking is notoriously underreported for all of the reasons I've discussed and many more. But from what we can estimate, human trafficking is one of the biggest money-making industries on our planet, likely surpassing $150 billion in annual revenue. Many cases look like Marita's, but many more don't. It's a common misconception that sex trafficking constitutes the majority of human trafficking cases. In reality, most trafficking victims are forced into other forms of labor besides sex. In industries like fishing, mining, manufacturing, construction, farming, and more. But even within the sex trafficking industry, grooming practices and the perceived agency of victims vary wildly from case to case. Sex trafficking can look like high school girls being forced to perform sex acts for money because male classmates threaten to leak sexually explicit photos or videos of them online. In cases where victims are kidnapped and held against their will, their abductors aren't always strangers. Oftentimes, groomers spend weeks or months building trust with their victims and gathering information they can use as leverage later on. Some even date their victims, so by the time their traffickers cut them off from the outside world, victims will often blame themselves for the situation they're in. So how can you help? What can you do to help stop trafficking? A good first step is to know what to look for and to understand who's most at risk. Studies show that unhoused youth, children who spend time in foster care or juvenile facilities, Refugees and migrant workers, people with disabilities, individuals with a history of substance abuse, survivors of domestic abuse and other forms of violence, and members of minority populations, especially those based on sexual or gender identities, are most at risk. You can educate yourself on the warning signs. You can read more about what those are by visiting the National Human Trafficking Hotline's website. But it's important to note that if you suspect someone you know is a victim of trafficking, it might not be best to confront them directly. It can be hard for victims to trust people again and open up about the situation they're in, especially if they're living under the constant threat of violence. Let them know you care about them and support them, then inform a trusted authority. Discretion is important until decisive action can be taken. It's easy to unknowingly put someone in harm's way. Lastly, you can raise awareness. Have difficult conversations with friends and family. Volunteer at local shelters, food banks, or youth support groups in your area. 
And of course, you can donate to the many organizations around the world who are working to put an end to trafficking, hopefully for good. And for her family's sake, I hope that one day, Marita will be found. For all of our sakes, I hope that stories like hers become relics of the past. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 35 people disappeared in the United States alone. The mission of the Maria de los Angeles Foundation is to eradicate human trafficking in the Argentine Republic and in the world. The foundation assists victims and their families in each of the country's provinces and holds prevention and training seminars to combat trafficking. For more information and to learn how you can help, visit fundacionmariadelosangeles.org. The link is in our episode description. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Connor Sampson, edited by Lori Gottlieb, Sarah Batchelor, and Aaron Lan. Fact-checked by Anya Bayerly, researched by Mickey Taylor, and produced by Aaron Larson. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.